Welcome to Pushback. I'm Aaron Maté here with Stephen F. Cohen, Professor Emeritus of Russian Studies at Princeton and NYU, author of the book War with Russia? From Putin in Ukraine to Trump and Russiagate. Welcome, Professor Cohen. Good to be with you again. Thank you. So let's talk Ukraine gate, dominating the news right now. Uh, at the center of this impeachment drive against Trump is that uh, he briefly froze military aid to Ukraine, and the belief there is he did so for political purposes. Putting that question aside, what has gotten lost in all this is the question of why are we sending military aid to Ukraine, and is that wise policy? The conventional line we get is that we are helping defend Ukraine from Russian aggression after Russia invaded uh, Ukraine, took Crimea illegally uh, in 2014, uh, and we are helping Ukraine respond uh, to that and to help support Ukraine in its fight against Russian separatists in the Donbas. What say you to that? Well, the first thing to remember is, is that President Obama was under enormous pressure to send military equipment to Ukraine. I don't know if you remember that or not, but it was a major campaign, uh, and it was led, I, as I recall, by people very close to him, and he refused. And why did he refuse? Well, I'm not sure what his calculation was, but the, the wisdom of not sending is clear. First of all, what everybody must want is peace between Russia and Ukraine. So why would you pour more weapons why would you tempt one Ukrainian? Now, the leadership of Ukraine has changed, but why would you tempt one or another Ukrainian leadership to broaden the war? Where you want, above all, to bring peace, correct? Secondly, uh, in whose hands eventually do such weapons fall? I mean, there's no guarantee in a place like Ukraine that the Ukrainian army, which is in the, involved in the black market in a big way, those weapons could go anywhere. Uh, but ultimately, you have a situation now which seems not to be widely understood that the new president of Ukraine, Zelensky, ran as a peace candidate. This is a bit of a stretch, and maybe it doesn't mean a whole lot to your generation, but he, he ran a kind of George McGovern campaign. The difference was McGovern got wiped out, and Zelensky won by, I think, 71, 72 Mm. Percent. He won an enormous uh, mandate to make peace. So uh, that means he has to negotiate with Vladimir Putin. And there are various formats, right? There's the so-called uh, Minsk format, which involves the German and the French. There's bilateral directly with Putin. But his willingness, and this is what's important and not well reported here, uh, his willingness to deal directly with Putin which his predecessor, Poroshenko, was not, or couldn't, or whatever reason, actually required considerable boldness on Zelensky because there are opponents of this in Ukraine, and they are armed. Some people say they're fascist, but they're certainly ultra-nationalist. And they have said that they'll remove and kill Zelensky if he continues along this line of negotiating with Putin. So now along comes Trump, right? Trump makes a wrong-headed phone call to Zelensky about Biden and information. It was a wrong thing to do. No two ways of looking at that. But the more important thing is, and that's why I'd like to see the full transcript of the, uh, we've only been given a partial so far as I know. I want to know if Trump encouraged Zelensky to continue the negotiation with Putin. And here's why. Zelensky cannot go forward 
as I've explained, I mean, his life is being threatened, literally, by quasi-fascist movements in Ukraine. He can't go forward with full peace negotiations with Russia, with Putin, unless America has his back. Maybe that won't be enough, but unless the White House encourages this diplomacy, Zelensky has no chance of negotiating an end of the war, so the stakes are enormously high. All this stuff by Biden, it's bad, but it's a distraction. It's not what we should be focusing on. We should not be shipping more weapons there. What we should be doing, and certainly what, given Trump's inclination to be a dealmaker and like a semi-peace candidate, but you wonder if there's anybody around him to explain these things to him. But this is an opportunity for Trump to do the right thing and do it clean. To say to Zelensky, I support this negotiation with Putin. I hope that you and Putin can settle your conflicts. Uh, if the Germans and the French, because there was a so-called Minsk format that involved them, need to be brought in, okay. But Europe's pretty much lost interest in this. And there's no leader. I mean, what makes the moment interesting, stop and think about it a minute, Eric, is there's no kind of, uh, what's the right word? Uh, there's no... Uh, transformative or decisive type of leadership in Europe. I mean, because these countries have their own leader. Merkel's on her way out. We don't know who'll be the next leader. Boris Johnson as well. Boris Johnson. Uh, uh, Macron is attempting to fill the role. He wants to be the, the leader of the West in relationship with Russia. Uh, he's trying to, it's very interesting what he's doing because he's trying to replicate what de Gaulle did. De Gaulle wanted France to be the diplomatic bridge between East and West. Let him try. But there's, there's a moment, I mean, I've, all my life I've, I have a book called Lost Opportunities, Soviet uh, Alternatives and Lost Opportunities. There's, there's, there are moments in history, political history, when there's an opportunity that is so good and wise and so often lost, the chance. So the chance for Zelensky, the new president, who had this very large uh, victory, 70 plus percent, to negotiate with Russia and into that war, uh, it's got to be seized, and it requires the United States basically simply saying to Zelensky, go for it, we've got your back. Well, let's talk about the forces in Washington that do not share that point of view, that do not want to encourage a peace process uh, between Russia and Ukraine. You know, you mentioned Trump. When Trump met with Zelensky, uh, Trump did say that he encourages Zelensky to make a deal with Putin, and he thinks that would be a good thing. But that is not an opinion shared uh, in, in Washington. Um, talk about the people who in D.C. Uh, who helped bring us this crisis to begin with, the same ones who were pressuring Obama to send a lethal aid. Let, let me sit in your chair a moment. I mean, just theoretically, what, could, what imaginable reason could anybody in Washington have for not wanting to see peace between Ukraine and Russia? You know, I have my theories, the, uh, the influence of the military-industrial complex. It's profitable to have tensions with Russia. There was an attempt in Ukraine, obviously, you know, at, with the Maidan crisis, the, which began all this, to uh, wrestle... Uh, in 2013, 2014. 2013, yeah, um, which is when the U.S. helped, uh, including Joe Biden, helped back an ouster of a corrupt but democratically elected president, uh, Yanukovych. So let's stop there. I mean, we, we all are obliged to use this formula, corrupt but democratically elected. It's true. Well, yes and no. But, there, but which is more important, that he, I mean, uh, I don't even know what it means that he was corrupt. I mean, he siphoned off a lot of state money for himself. He was corrupt. This is culture. Okay. This is a culture. I right. mean, uh, 
the point here is, is that we, since the end of the Soviet Union, have said that we want to promote democracy and particularly constitutionalism, right, as opposed to political caprice mm -hmm. in the former Soviet territories. You would agree, that's been official American policy. Why then would you, you, you depose, support the overthrow by a street mob, whatever you call it, I don't care what democratic banners they were carrying, because there were plenty of neo-fascists among them too, who had been a leader who had been, by all ratifying European monitoring organizations, freely and fairly elected. It had been a fairly clean election. Uh, especially when he had already agreed to move elections up, I think within nine months, you could vote him out. Why would the United States, therefore immediately within hours as being President Obama, support what was essentially a street coup? I mean, it's a blow to constitutionalism, the very cause that we claim to be promoting. So we need to think about that. That was a turning point. It sent a message about what the United States really was prepared to send. I mean, that's a little digression on my part, but it was a very important moment, and it was very wrong-headed. It was. You had John McCain and Victoria Nuland uh, visiting Ukraine, Nuland passing out cookies to protesters. We can imagine if, say, uh, Russians went to Mexico City, helped uh, back a coup there and change the government, and then talked about having Mexico City join a military alliance with Russia, which was the talk about Ukraine joining NATO. I fully agree, but I just keep coming back in my mind and replaying these events that this idea that maybe democracy and constitutionalism could take root in these areas that really hadn't had much of it, right? Mm -hmm. And this is a pivotal moment because Yanukovych, then the president, had by all counts been freely and fairly and constitutionally elected. Mind you, he had also signed an agreement brokered by the, I believe this is right, by the British, the French, and the Americans to have early elections which happens in some systems. In other words, to have new presidential elections, not in a year and a half, but within nine or ten months. This is after the Maidan crisis began. As it began. They, began yeah, as, as, a, as yeah. a settlement, a negotiation with the protesters. Yeah. That, okay, stop occupying the building, stop trying to drive me out of office. I will agree to new elections. Right? But it doesn't matter. He's overthrown anyway. But stop and think what was at stake there. Yeah. Every person who wishes constitutionalism and democracy will in that part of the world should have seized that opportunity. Now, it is said that Putin and Obama had a conversation. And it is said that Putin said to Obama, do you agree to this solution? New elections. Obama said, I do. 36 hours later, Yanukovych was driven to office by a coup. So apart from it, I mean, it, it's, it's wrong, it's bad, it's stupid on the face of it. But it's consequential. It sets precedence for American behavior. So now people are ragging on Trump about Ukraine, but we've forgotten what was really the turning point. I mean, it's just been deleted. What was the interest? What was the motive? I mean, you asked me, but I'm asking you, what was the motive of the Obama administration uh, to do this, to, uh, to have Victoria Nuland and the ambassador to Ukraine, they were caught in a phone call basically talking about who they were gonna install as the Ukrainian president? What was there? The story gets a little torturous here and a little legalistic. The pretext for the overthrow of Yanukovych was is that he had been offered this wonderful trade agreement, this partnership with Europe, mm -hmm. which would make Ukraine prosperous forever, but excluded Russia. And yet Russia was Ukraine's not only largest trading partner, 
and still is today, by the way, which is interesting, right? But if you go into the demographics, the number of intermarriages between Russians and Ukrainians runs in the tens of millions. I mean, I don't want to say they're, they're not one people. I mean, there's a separate Ukrainian identity. Ukraine is a diverse country. Uh, Western Ukraine looks to Poland and Lithuania, not to Russia. But nonetheless, much of central Ukraine and almost all of southern Ukraine look to Russia as brethren, as kinfolk, as family. I mean, to trespass in a family spat, which is not a good idea in our everyday lives, and geopolitics is a grave mistake. We went into something with profound cultural, familial, historical consequences that we didn't understand. So what was at stake at that moment was this, that the economic trade agreement that Yanukovych was offered, so-called the European Partnership, I think it was called, if you read it, and almost never, nobody bothered to read it, other countries had signed it, there was a clause that said that if you signed it, you agreed to adhere to the procedures, rules, and norms of NATO. Very few people know that was included, but the Russians knew, mm. and they got a lot of international lawyers. In other words, what this was is an attempt to bring Ukraine into NATO via the back door. Without saying, we're really, this is really a way of getting into NATO, it's just a benign, but it wasn't benign. So when Yanukovych balked, and by the way, he balked also because financially it was not advantageous to him. He would have faced massive protests over the subsidies, the fuel subsidies that he would have had to have cut. With, I would then add, he having already agreed to an early election, which many would have lost the election. Right. But nonetheless, uh, coups are not good things in general. But in this area, with this legacy, with this notion that democracy is a really viable, viable alternative, and we, the United States, represent that alternative, it was utterly discredited. Except by people, I mean, I'm not going to name the names of people who write fairy tale stories about what happened, but you know who they are. They're very influential, they're, they're on television a lot, but it's a fairy tale, it's not what happened. And you know, to be candid, uh, with Trump as our president, Obama looks a lot better to a lot of people than he did at the time, but the truth is, is that Obama was an exceedingly unsuccessful foreign policy president. And one of his failures of foreign policy was his, the way he handled this whole Ukrainian thing. Well, it's interesting there, though, because here you, have, you mentioned earlier that Obama did not want to send this lethal military aid to Ukraine out of concerns about it fuel, f further fueling this proxy war that he helped start and about the uh, weapons falling into the wrong hands. Trump gets into office, and he actually adopts a more hawkish policy in the sense that he's now facing all this pressure uh, because he's being accused of being a Russian agent and a traitor. So I think it's fair to uh, deduce that in response to that, to help get that off his back, he approves, he approves the lethal aid to Ukraine that Obama rejected. So he, in fact, uh, uh, went further than Obama and actually acceded to the demands of the bipartisan foreign policy consensus in Washington, which then leads us to this moment here, because then he puts a brief freeze on that military aid, and now he's facing impeachment. And he's facing impeachment not because of the military aid, but because he appeared to want something for it, yeah. Biden stuff. Yeah. It goes back to the question of why are we in Ukraine anyway? What were the Bidens doing there? Why were we there? I mean, the short answer is obviously, uh, I mean, let, let's do what you just pointed out. Uh, Ukraine is very far away. 
it represents no particular national interest or threat to us what happens there. Uh, as you say, it's not like our border with Canada or Mexico. For Russia, again, to make my point, it's absolutely vital. It's, it's, it's simply, there's no more existential area abutting Russia than Ukraine, whether you talk about families, shared history, military threats, and all the rest. So in terms of what could actually solve this, assuming that Ukraine gate doesn't derail the prospects for peace in Ukraine, the, the prospects of talks between Ukraine and Russia, first of all, do you think that Russia ever gives back Crimea? No. No. That won't happen? No. Well, ever is a capacious word. Uh, not in my lifetime and not in your lifetime. Uh, the reason is, is that it, even though Russia acquiesced into Crimea's kind of assignment uh, to Ukraine, nobody in Russia actually thought it was real. And to tell you the truth, if you look at the lack of investment or caring about Crimea, it wasn't clear Ukraine even cared about Crimea. But the reality is, is that in, in history, in folklore, in sentiment, in, in, in culture, Crimea has always been, in the Russian mind, Russian. But it hasn't been exclusive. I mean, they've understood that Ukrainians, Tatar, Crimeans live there, and for the most part, you know, harmoniously. Uh, so it's a kind of tragedy the way Ukraine got plucked out of its, out of its history. But no, uh, no Russian leader in, the, in, in your lifetime, I think. I, we should never say never. I mean, I, one thing I've learned, never say never. But it's hard to imagine any circumstance uh, where Russia would say Crimea goes back to Ukraine. However, a little diplomacy could go a long way. Uh, that the relationship between Ukraine and Crimea should be fulsome. By relationship, I mean particularly economic, uh, particularly involving the natural resources. Ukraine has a, Crimea has a lot of resources from fresh water, the minerals. Uh, there's no reason why, because it's now legally part of Russia, Ukraine should be excluded. So, and, and I was in, I guess it's okay to say that, I was in Crimea, and I talked to the leader of the Crimean Republic, and I said, I don't see any reason why the best outcome is in a fulsome economic, cultural, even political relationship between Russia, Crimea, and Ukraine. And he said, I agree, go convince Putin of that. So there's resistance in the Kremlin, of course. Why? Because of, well, because it's been raised to this geopolitical stake by the outside world. If they give ground there, then they're giving ground to Washington. Yeah, but it's going to happen, I think. I mean, I don't know if Putin has to leave power, if it's that far down the road. But all the rational, whether they're human or economic or cultural, factors are is that Ukraine is kind of belongs to both and there's no reason why it should be one or other, other no matter whose map it's on if you see what I mean and I think that's going to happen the, uh, the number of tourists uh, when I was in Crimea two, two years ago it's hard to tell the nationalities of a lot of tourists because so many people speak Russian but it still seems to be very popular Russian uh, 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 a tourist spot, obviously for Russians, because Putin's made a big effort of cheap flights and all the rest, but Ukrainians coming too, which is as it should be. There's absolutely no reason to have this, this, this conflict over Crimea, none. 
and he's fallen victim to larger geopolitics. Do you think the people who drove this in Washington, D.C., who helped spark the Ukrainian crisis, who backed the coup, who, I guess, had visions of bringing Ukraine into NATO, as crazy as that sounds, do you think that um, they're uh, willing to give ground, and do you think that they can be overcome here? It would be a struggle, because their perspective is, is what's bad for Russia is good for us, or so this kind of reasoning. And we went through this during the previous Cold War, and after the Cuban Missile Crisis, there was a kind of, I wouldn't say transformation of American thinking about that Cold War, but a shift where you began to see more and more important people, that is say people who could influence policy, whether they're in media or politics or whatever, beginning to say maybe it's time for us to think more about what we have in common, what we can do together, because that was really dangerous, the Cuban Missile Crisis. You know, we almost went to war with Russia. We need some galvanizing force like that, I guess, and I'm afraid it might come. I mean, I can imagine easily. I mean, my anxiety, which I talk about in this book, War with Russia, question mark, is a Cuban Missile crisis-like situation between the United States and Russia. Not in Cuba, but it could be in Syria, could be in Ukraine, where we're eyeball to eyeball militarily, right? One can imagine something going wrong, or not going wrong, by intent, by provocation, because there are a lot of provocateurs out there running false flag operations. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but false flag operations exist. So say we get into a Cuban Missile Crisis-like situation. Kennedy had all the leeway he needed, and did Khrushchev, the Soviet leader then, to negotiate us away from war. Would Trump? Stop and think. Here's Trump, who's routinely and pointlessly and idiotically referred to as a Russian puppet, right? That hasn't gone away. I still get campaign solicitations from Democrats that say, send me to Congress so I can get rid of the Russian puppet. This lingers like a cancer in the system. It's a malignancy. But imagine this crisis. And it's easy to imagine in Syria, in Ukraine, wherever we're eyeball to eyeball, military with Russians. We now ask Trump to do what Kennedy did, to negotiate with Khrushchev's successor, Putin, away from war. Would Trump be permitted, even if Trump knows how to do it, would he be permitted to do it? Because a large part of the American political class says Trump is not a legitimate president. To say that, and there's no reason to say it, by the way, there's no evidence that he isn't by our rules legitimate, but to, to, to say that and keep saying it, then you have to ask yourself, and what if it came to a Cuban Missile White crisis? Would he be legitimate enough to negotiate the way Kennedy did away from war? I think about that really often. Well, let me ask you then quickly as we wrap, is part of this the point then, is the uh, aim of portraying Trump as this Russian puppet, is the utility of that for these people to actually take away his ability to make peace and make detente with Russia? I think there's probably a small faction in Washington that really likes Cold War and the more the better with Russia. Whether it's for economic reasons, they sell a lot of weapons, whether because they were raised that way ideologically, whether because Russophobia is a major factor in American politics, whether because they have, I don't want to denigrate anybody, they have a lot of Ukrainians in their constituency, where they're from, for whatever reason. But it is exceedingly dangerous and getting more dangerous by the, by the week, by the day. Trump has to be free in a crisis to negotiate as a legitimate president on behalf of the United States. And a crisis could come at any time.
And if he's not, all bets are off. I mean, I have to say to you, Aaron, that in four, maybe more decades of studying Russia, studying Russian-American relations, I never really took seriously the possibility of war between the United States and Russia. I never thought it was ever a, had a high probability. Today, I think it's a very high probability, partly because of this Russiagate nonsense, partly because of the lack of American leadership. And I guess you could call it a Putin apologist, but I will say again, as I've said to you on other occasions, that what Putin came to power to do was to modernize Russia. And that is not involve Cold War with the West, period, in the story. That's his mission. He wants to go down in history as the man who did this. Cold War, not to mention hot war, is spoiling what he sees as his mission. He's there for the having. And even if Trump wants to do it, it's not clear he knows how to do it, or that the people around him would advise him or even permit him to do it. It's not clear. Even with the departure of Fiona Hill and some of the other hawkish members of his administration. Because we have to remember that the one area where an American president really has almost, not autocratic, but exclusive power is making foreign policy. Short of doing a treaty, there's almost nothing. There's a double negative they can't do for better or worse. And there's a golden moment now to be had for everybody's security. And it's being forwarded by this mindless, I mean, you can hate on Trump all you want, but there's got to be a higher priority and that's got to be international American security. And we're letting that opportunity slip away. I fear. Stephen F. Cohen, Professor Emeritus of Russian Studies at Princeton and NYU, author of several books, including his latest, War with Russia, From Putin and Ukraine to Trump and Russia Gate. Professor, thank you. Thank you, Ryan. Always good.